as I said, uh, we do have a lot to cover today. Uh, being that we finished up chapter 3 of the book of Galatians last week. We, we finished that chapter, and we're going to move on to chapter 4 today. And I really want to, to get through the, the whole chapter. I think we can do it um, mainly because the Apostle Paul's, uh, he's seemingly repeating some, some topics that we've already talked about. So I think we'll be able to move through them and we'll be able to track, uh, being that we've already covered some of the issues that he's going to bring up. We're familiar with some of the topics already, uh, but maybe just very, very quickly, we'll, we'll kind of review what we did uh, last week in uh, chapter 3, and there what we saw was that the Apostle Paul is just continuing um, to address the error that's happening in the Galatian church, and the error there is that um, the Galatians there have a good desire. They want to become Abraham's children. And why would they want to become Abraham's children? So that they can take part in the blessings and the promise and the covenant that was given to Abraham, which we saw is the blessing of justification. And to be a son of Abraham, and a descendant of Abraham, is to be a descendant of God himself. And so they have a good desire um, to, to be in the line and the blessing of Abraham, but the problem is, is that in order to get there, they're going the wrong way. And there's false teachers called the Judaizers that we call them, in the Galatians church, who's, who's, who's teaching the churches in Galatia that they must come underneath the Mosaic law, that they must come under the Mosaic law in order to gain that standing before God as Abraham's children. And that's the error that's being taught. They're being taught to gain righteousness is to, be, is to do that by the law. And so the Apostle Paul addresses um, the law itself in Galatians chapter 3, and he taught us that the purpose of the law was not to gain righteousness. The purpose of the law was not um, to make one a child of Abraham. Um, it had a completely different purpose. The law was given hundreds of years after the, the promise of the Messiah to Abraham was given. And so this law was given much later with a completely different purpose. And the purpose of the law we talked about was to reveal man's sin. It was to reveal man's sin and to really show man that he is not righteous and that he is not good enough and that he does not deserve to be Abraham's descendant and receive the blessing. That's the purpose of the law. He said it was a tutor. It was a guide to lead us to Christ. It's to show us our need and it should drive us to the Savior. That's why God added the law. It was a grace to lead his people to Christ by faith and not by the law. And at the end of chapter 3 there, the Apostle Paul uh, just really reiterates to the Galatians what their standing is. He reminds them that they are sons of God by faith. They're sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And he reminds them as well that there are no distinctions in the people of God. We saw in 3.28 there, he says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you, all, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. And so these Gentiles, everyone in the church who has believed is Abraham's descendant and will receive the blessing of justification and has already. And so Paul's just reminding them of where they're at. They don't need to seek a better standing with God through the law. They actually have Christ and his righteousness already. And so that, that's what we covered last week. Um, that's pretty much as, 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 as a summary as I can make it. So let's move on in chapter 4 because Paul's going to continue... Um, on the topic of 
of these Galatians being heirs of Christ, being heirs of God. And uh, here in chapter 4, we see that he doesn't only remind them of their standing now, but he's also going to remind them of their, of their standing before God before they came to faith. He's going to talk about their standing before they came to faith, their, their pre-conversion days. Um, so let's just read here together. And remember, by all means, we've, we want this to kind of be like an interact, interaction time, so please ask questions, comments, anything you guys have um, is definitely encouraged. That's how we want it to be. So let's, let's read chapter 4, the first uh, few verses here. Paul says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. And so as I said, Paul, using this first century analogy again of, of how Usually the richer families, uh, the more wealthy, wealthy families, Roman and Greek families would have the ability to hire a slave that would be the guardian over their children. This guardian would, would, would watch their children, direct their children to and from school, wherever they were going, would keep them out of trouble, um, but would really be over them, would be over them in that sense. And so Paul um, speaks to the Galatians as, as of if they were children. And what he's referencing here is that really their pre-conversion state. They're under a guardian. They're, it's like they have this slave over them. And all he's pointing out is just the, uh, the immature mindset of the unconverted before coming to faith. That's what Paul's talking about here. But what's really so interesting, so Paul's talking to the Galatians about this, 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 this bondage that they're in before coming to faith. And, uh, but what's interesting in verse 3 here, Paul includes himself likewise with them in this bondage. Um, Paul, being a law-keeping Jew, um, is, is, is grouping himself in the language there with these pagan Gentiles in the reality that before they came to faith, they were all children held in bondage under the elemental things of the world, Jew and Gentile alike. And he calls it the elemental things of the world, um, just showing the universal scope of, of pre-conversion bondage. Yes, sir. Why in verse 1 mm -hmm. does it say he's the owner of everything, and why in verse 1 is it com comparing a child to slave as if they're different? Um, well, so I don't think the analogy matches exactly what he was talking about in chapter 3. My interpretation is that when he says children, that he's not talking unconverted, he's talking converted. But when you're immature until you have fullness of understanding, mm -hmm. that guidelines still are helpful until you fully learn how to walk in the Spirit and are set free. Right. Um, well, I mean, I think we can see from verse 3 that he's not, he's talking pre-conversion. Because he says, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. And so when we, when we see what elemental things of the world is, it's always speaking of... I, I agree. Okay. But, but I okay. think as a child, mm -hmm. new, new believers in the faith are still held in bondage by that. They can be, yeah. They can be. And these people are converted going back. So they're going back to the childish ways. So yeah, that could be true. Uh, but I, don't, I think he's definitely... I mean, I don't think there's anybody who, they are, they are saved, and he's referencing um, the fact that they are heirs, right? He's not saying they're not heirs. He's saying they were. That's why I'm, that's yeah. why I'm saying when it's talking about them as children, mm -hmm. it, it looks to me like he's talking about them as converted people mm -hmm. just until they're, until they're mature enough to fully walk in the spirit. They're still right. um, 
I guess, have the tendency to... We'll maybe look at seven, because he's still, he's still in the same argument there. We'll jump, just look at seven. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir. Right? So he's talking about how they were slaves, now they're not, now they're heirs. So, I mean, the distinction is always what they were, what they are now, you know. But I get what you're saying. There's, there's true, you know what I mean? There, you could still be a child in the faith, you know, definitely, and be under some certain kind of bondages, um, not fully aware of your liberty, right? That, that's, that's perfectly true. And I, that's what I would say, even based on what you're saying in verse 7, where mm-hmm. it says you're no longer a slave but a son and a son and heir, mm-hmm. because that's the same thing when he goes back into... I guess the beginning where he, he's using child or son and slave differently mm-hmm. versus pre-converted and post-converted. Mm-hmm. No, I see what you're saying. I definitely see what you're saying. Um, but I think his point is the bondage that people are under before they come to faith. Right? That's his point. So here he calls this bondage the elemental things of the world. So it's not just even... Um, a Jewish bondage, which we looked at Jewish bondage, right? Um, pre-converted Jews, they're under the bondage of the law. They're under the curse of the law and that they have to keep the law perfectly, right? They're held under this bondage of keeping the law. Um, and we've talked a lot about how the Jews were held under the law, but what about the Gentiles? How is it that Paul lumps in Jew and Gentile alike in this pre-conversion bondage? How could that be? I mean, we, we've, we've actually talked about it to, earlier in chapter 3 as well. Um, as, as the law kept everybody under sin, um, but pagans, before they're converted, they likewise have um, systems of religions, traditions. Um, these first century pagans would have been worshiping idols. They would have been making sacrifices. They would have been kept, uh, keeping holy days um, in their worship to their gods, right? And so when we look at even all the world's religions, um, there's really an infinite amount of different ways that different systems of works righteousness that, that man develops. It, it's infinite. So even the pagans are held under um, different types of law-keeping systems and that they're held in bondage to that. And most of them simply just boil down to some sort of moralism, right? Some sort of being good enough um, according to whatever system they, they put together. And so here we see that um, it's the elemental things of the world. So whether it's a Jew under the written law or it's the, the Gentiles that have the, the works of the law written on their heart, they're all held under this, this bondage of trying to keep the law. Right? And I, and I, and I think with this, he calls it the elemental things of the world. We really just see the, this fundamentally flawed thinking of man. And so we saw in chapter 3 the purpose of God's law was to reveal man's sin. But fallen man takes this law that God gave to reveal one's shortcoming and actually tries to use it to prop themselves up and make themselves worthy. I mean, they completely um, distort the use of the law. Right? That's not what it was for to make yourself right. It's only a fallen, very uh, spiritually childish person who would have such a low view of God and such a high view of man if they think that this would be good enough for a holy God. Right? It's very, chi- it's very immature um, it's unspiritual thinking to think that that is, uh, is going to work for you. Um, let me just quote Colossians 2.8, which is a, a, a similar reference, uses a similar language, and it's a warning that Paul gives to the churches in Colossae. And uh, I'll just read it to you. It says this. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, 
according to the elementary principles of the world. Just that same language there. He says, make sure nobody takes you captive of these things rather than according to Christ. And then for, for me, I see just a, a very important um, distinction there. You have every type of philosophy and tradition of man on one hand, whether Jew, Gentile, pagan, whatever, anything else rather than according to Christ. There's only two options. It's either Christ or every other man-made, very basic way of thinking that you can be good enough. And those are the two options there. It's either Christ or the thinking in, in, in just world religions of man. And so here, verse 4, let's go on. Jesus Christ is indeed the answer. He's the redeemer and the curse bearer for both Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile alike. Verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so Paul says when the fullness of the time came, just meaning when God in his providence had, had ordered everything, um, had everything in the, in the world, on the earth, ready for Jesus Christ to come. Um, everything in the earth was perfectly aligned so that the Christ would come and, and fulfill prophecy, fulfill God's word, um, and all of these necessary events that were in place. Uh, so when God had the world ready in his providence, it says that God sent forth his son. Right? And this is, a, this is a, really a big phrase if, if, if you look at it, because in order for the son to be sent by the father, he must already exist. Right? The son, the son of God, did not become the son of God at his, by being born. Right? Many distort that kind of, you know, false religions. I mean... Um, no Christian churches believe that Jesus Christ became the son at, the, at his birth. But many take it, uh, say what? Liberals. Liberals can take it that way. I mean, one is Pentecostals, take it in that way. He became the son at his birth. But no, God sent his son to be born, right? He was already the son. So we see his preexistence as the son of God, his deity, all of these things. God sent his son, um, and going on the text it says, to be born of a woman, the son was to be born in, in a, of a woman, born under the law, for a purpose that he might redeem those who were under the law. So he might redeem those who were under the law. So Jesus was born of a woman so that he could take on our nature. The son of God, who was God, had to take on our nature. He had to be born of a woman so that he could suffer in the ways we suffer, be tempted in the ways that we were tempted, all of these things. He took on human nature. He was born of a woman. And not just born um, by any woman at any time, but he was born underneath the law, right? So this is just one of those aspects of God's providence that includes the fullness of the time, is that the Christ was given um, at the time that the law was given. Christ was born in Israel underneath the written Mosaic law, right? That's, that, was, that was necessary for the Christ to come and be born underneath the law, as we know, so he could perfectly keep it. He was born under this written law so he could perfectly keep it and fulfill it. That's why Jesus came at this time. He was going to perfectly keep and fulfill the written law of God, the Mosaic law, as I said, for a purpose, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. And as, as I, I already tried to prove that man, uh, Jew and Gentile are both under the law. We're both under the law. We either have it written in the Mosaic Code that we saw, or we have it written, uh, the works of the law written on our hearts. 
we know we know God's law, and uh, so we're all held in bondage under that, trying to keep it um, until faith comes. And this this word here, where it says that Christ came to redeem us, to redeem those who are under the law, uh, the word redeem there is very uh, significant, and that in the first century this word was used. To, to speak, uh, it would have been used to speak of purchasing a slave, or to pay to pay a, a, an amount of money to free a slave. You would ransom a slave. You'd pay some money so he could go free. And so we just see how how really a great description that is for Paul to use of of this death of Christ and what it accomplished. Um, the the law keeping, the obedience of Jesus Christ um, was used to purchase us who were under the law. It was substitutionary. Yes, sir. Now, uh, the way I'm reading this particular passage, it says, mm-hmm. uh, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law mm-hmm. so that uh, we might receive adoption as sons. Now, when it, when it uses the word were, it seems as if it's a, simply a past tense uh, scenario as where um, I'm trying to understand the correlation between after Christ mm-hmm. uh, had, had died and risen uh, to where are we technically under the law before faith as people born after Christ has already risen? Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, there's some distinctions. Like Paul, we'll see later, he uses the word law in different senses. Right? He can use the law to speak specifically of the Mosaic Covenant and call it the law, or he can speak more generally, as we'll see at the very end, hopefully he can be the whole Old Testament when he says law. Right? But if you ask, are we under the law, we're not under the law in the sense of the Mosaic Covenant. Right, we're not under that law, um, but we are under before we come to faith under the bondage of the law, and that all man's religion is trying to keep this right. Like Romans says, we'll be held uh, we'll be held uh, accountable according to this law, the works of the law written on our heart. You know, we try to keep it, we don't. It's going to accuse us. So in that sense, we are under the law, and that we'll be held guilty by it. We'll be found guilty by the law. Um, so yeah, that's. That's a good question, and it's kind of tricky because there's always um, these little variances in the way he used the word law throughout here, and almost, I mean, just because of the way we're having to move so fast, you just can't, so I almost, I'm glad you asked because it, we'll see it today as well, hopefully at the very end, that he uses it, um, the same word in the same sentence, two different ways. So it might help to just even see that. Um, even with flesh, you see the same kind Even with flesh, he's going to mention today too. Um, Even I flesh. Think, I think a good premise for that, though, mm-hmm. is if you're talking about forensic issues, mm-hmm. justification and law and grace and those kinds of things, I think a good way to look at it is if you're talking about law mm-hmm. and you're talking about the context of judgment, mm-hmm. just recognize that God judges by His law He's given that He's revealed. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, if you're if that's taken out of the way and you're you come into adoption, it's a whole different way God looks at you. Mm-hmm. you know, if you look with the future justification work, future grace, you know, mm-hmm. where you're, you're going to get the judgment seat. He's got to looking at you. He's going to be like, hey, good to go. Yeah. Your son, come in the joy of your father. Come on. And he's going to say good to go based on Jesus Christ right. keeping that law, keeping every aspect of the law, yeah. any law, active you know, active and passive, which is why I have this reference. It's a very helpful reference to see how Jesus Christ's law keeping um, benefits us in that sense. How that's, um, we talk about uh, imputation of Jesus Christ's righteousness. His law keeping, he gives to us because we don't keep the law. We break it. That's what we need. We need his righteousness. This, that's part of justification we talked about. When you're justified, you get Christ's righteousness. Therefore, God can say you're righteous, not because you and yourself are righteous, 
But the text I have here is Romans 5.19. I'll just read it. It says, For as through the one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. And so just, just what we're talking about here, it's the obedience of Jesus Christ being born under the law that becomes our righteousness. The, the, the obedience, they call it the active obedience of Christ, um, is imputed to us, just as we had kept God's law. When he looks at us, he sees us as being righteous. Uh, because we're in Christ, we're clothed in Christ, we're clothed with Christ, as he said before. Um, so let's go on and look at, um, there's really, here in verses 5 and 6, Paul spells out some more of the benefits, some more of the benefits that come along with this, uh, this purchase, this redeeming of us by Christ. Um, so let's, let's read here, going on in verse 5, he says, um, He redeemed those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so there, there really is a whole lot there in that verse and a half. And maybe if you just want to scan with your eyes back over that, I'm just going to list all of these benefits again and maybe just touch on each one very shortly. Look at the benefits of this, this redeeming work of Christ. Um, halfway through verse 5 there, he says that because of this, we're adopted as sons. We're brought into the family of God by the work of Christ and his obedience. That, that's, that's one of the results and the benefits of the redemption of Christ, that we're made sons of God. That in itself is we're in the family of God Almighty. I don't even know. I mean, it's, that's big. In verse 6, he says, another benefit, it almost, it almost, they almost follow each other. A benefit of being a son of God, it says, is that we get the spirit of God. We get the spirit of God's son. God himself dwelling in us. The Holy Spirit is inside of you if you're a believer. Um, and what's also important about this text here is that the Spirit comes as a result of, of salvation. If you've been redeemed by Christ, you will have the Spirit. If you've been converted, you will have the Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit, he, he, he's part of the, the benefits of salvation. He comes with the whole package. The Holy Spirit is not something that uh, a Christian waits and hopes to receive one day, right? We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says if you don't have the Spirit, you're not His. Right? This is part of salvation. The Holy Spirit himself, he, he gives to you. You receive the Spirit because you're a son. That's why. So what also comes with the receiving of the Spirit? Um, we have this access to God. We have this access to God by where the Spirit in us causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out to God with this very intimate, in a very intimate and real relationship that we wouldn't have had before, before the Spirit. We would have called out to God as, God, please don't kill me for not keeping your law. And, and we view God as our judge only. Uh, but here we cry out to God as our Father. And Abba, meaning just is simply the Aramaic for Father. We cry out to God as our Father because the Spirit's in us. And uh, last but not least here, uh, Paul again reminds these uh, Gentile Christians of this great status that they have. Um, that they're no longer under bondage, under the, the world's religions, um, but they're sons. And if you're a son of God, you're therefore an heir of God. 
an heir receives the inheritance from their fa from your father. And we don't even have, I mean, we could spend the next three weeks just talking about all the benefits and all the blessings that, that God has for his children. I mean, think about the wealth of God. If you inherit the wealth of, of God himself, I mean, there's no time to even get into all that. But these are the blessings that we have due to the redemption of Jesus Christ, due to, to the work that he's done. That's what we have. So look at verse 8, Paul again here. Um, again, he's going to show, um, just continue to, to show this contrast of these, the, the pre-conversion days, the pre-faith days, to where they are now. He says in verse 8, However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? So he used the same language again. You're turning back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. And so we see the Apostle Paul here. He's fearful. He's done all of this preaching, all of this missionary work, all these labors and prayers at these churches, and he's fearful that they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna go back. They're going to fall away. Yes, sir. Um, I like in verse 9 where he points out the difference now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God. Mm. Kind of like the Lord, Lord in Matthew chapter 7 where it doesn't matter if you say you know him, it's does he know you. And wow. Like Paul Washer uses in one of his sermons, if you go to the White House and say, I know the president, they're not going to let you in because you say you know him, but if he walks to the gate and says, I know you, then you come in. Yeah. Did you know God, it's does he know you. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, so the significance there is whether God knows you, not whether you know of this God. Because you go to yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses say they know Christ. Yeah. Catholics say they know Christ. A lot of them are going to say they know Christ, but it's wow. not based upon biblical theology. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there, there will be many people that say, Lord, Lord. Um, but just as these Judaizers in the churches, um, they may think that they know God, but as we'll see in chapter 5, the death of Christ will not benefit them, right? They did not come to God by faith. The, the, the death of Christ, all these benefits here that we're talking about, is going to be of no benefit to them. Anyone going back and, and seeking to be made a child of God through works of the law, uh, they've fallen from grace. And so God does not know them. Yeah, that is, that is really, really significant there. Um, that's good. Uh, so so let's, let's look here um, again. At the, what's the example that he uses here of these Gentiles going backwards? And the example that he gives here is they observe days and months and seasons and years. And so these would have just been things that the that the Judaizers would have been pointing them to as far as keeping the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law had with it um, Sabbath days that were to be kept, monthly celebrations, uh, the new moon celebration, uh, seasonal events like the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover. These were longer little seasonal, seasonal celebrations. Uh, and there was yearly celebrations, sabbatical years. And then every 50 years, as a result of the sabbatical years, you'd have the year of Jubilee. Right? So these are just things that um, the Judaizers would have been pressing in um, for these Gentiles to partake in if they really wanted to be descendants of Abraham. Um, and, and so Paul says here to turn back to these type of keeping of days, now that the fulfillment have, has come, that would have been just as worthless as going back to all the days you kept as a pagan, these days you kept in worship of your gods. That is worthless. 
that didn't get you to God then, it's not going to get you to God going back to that now, right? It's not, it's not helpful. Um, these are things that are elementary um, ways of the world. Um, these are not how God um, is pleased with our worship in these ways. Um, and as we'll see in chapter 5, Christ's death was to set us free from these things. It was to set us free from the bondage of these types of elemental ways of relating to God. That's what we'll see next week, Lord willing. Um, so here we have a transition in the text. Um, here the Apostle Paul is really going to get into a very, much more, a very much more intimate section of the letter with the Galatians. And what he's going to do is he's going to be recalling with them the very personal time that he had with them when he visited them and preached the gospel to them and, and was doing his missionary work. Uh, we, we see him call them brethren, his children, um, he's pleading with them at this point. Um, and let's, let's get there. Right before he's pleading with them, though, in verse 11, mm-hmm. it's worth pointing out that he's sitting there saying, I'm, I'm fearful that your conversion was false. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he, those are strong words. Yeah. Paul's terrified at this point. You know what I mean? He, they're showing horrible signs of, of falling away. And so it's one of those things when you're speaking to a church, I'm sure not all, because the, he's already said to them that some of them obviously received the Spirit. Sure. The miracles were being worked. Um, all of these, there was examples of, of how the Spirit was working. So not everyone, but the church in, in general, yeah, seemed to be falling away. So, it's funny, it's like almost uh, in Romans 8, you know, how he uses the Abba Father and mm-hmm. whatnot. If you start at verse, uh, looks like verse 11 in Romans 8, but the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Mm-hmm. And he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under no, no under, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Mm-hmm. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out on the Father. Mm-hmm. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be also glorified with him. It's funny how he uses the same theology. Same language. The same language yeah. in everything. Yeah. And this one, he's preceding your identity. It's going to determine how you're going to be pushing for sanctification mm-hmm. in a different way. Mm-hmm. And this way, he's saying your identity will cause you to flee from these mm-hmm. things. Yeah. You know, you know what yeah. I mean? So it's funny to see that. And then I was, yeah. I was thinking about how if we, in this way, it's, it's old, it's a false religion. And the other way, it's the flesh. Mm-hmm. But either way, it's sin, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just knowing our identity with Christ and being heirs, it helps with, with mm-hmm. that and the indwelling of the Spirit of God. That is a good point because, I mean, Paul's been reiterating with them over and over, you are heirs, or you are sons by faith. He's telling them their identity over and over for that purpose of reminding them. You don't right. need the you, you flesh. You don't need You're a whole different person yeah, now. You're a whole different thing, and uh, you should know even that God sees you as perfectly righteous already. You don't need to try to develop this righteousness in order to gain his acceptance. No, that's, that's good. I think that'll come along with, with chapter 5 as well um, and how the Spirit works in, in the believer, right? So let, let's just really quickly, man, that whole passage, I mean, it almost seems like a perfect parallel. Yeah, I was about to say, um, I was looking at that. So let's, like, uh, good. let's read just real quickly, um, starting in verse 12. And remember, I just said this is really Paul getting very intimate with these churches. He says, I beg of you, brethren, Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. 
you have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing that you had? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. And so we really see just the Apostle Paul pleading with these churches um, and reminding them, remember of how you accepted me and my message when I came the first time. Think back to how you, you respected the, the, the gospel message that I brought to you and respected me and loved me. Where's that joy at? Why are you guys turning now away from all of that, that love that you once had for me? And it reminds them uh, of the love that they had for Paul. And then he uses this, uh, this example here. Um, so they didn't receive him reluctantly. Um, he says they received him as Christ Jesus himself with the utmost, the utmost love and joy for Paul. They received him as a messenger of God, as Christ Jesus himself. And uh, Paul said that they would have even plucked out their eyes for him, which uh, just, just leads a lot of people to wonder, is that figurative speech, or is Paul maybe giving a hint to um, what, the thorn, what the thorn in the flesh was that he had, that he references in Corinthians, right? He mentions the thorn, everybody wonders what's the thorn in the flesh. Um, so Paul says here, they would have even plucked out their eyes and given to him. Maybe that's a reference to maybe the problem that he had. Maybe he had some problem with his eyes. Um, you know, that's just kind of speculating, but it's interesting to think about that, why Paul would have used that language. Because uh, I don't know that that was an idiom that people just always talk, you, you know, you pluck out your eyes for me, you really love me. It may have been a clue into, into an issue that Paul had. Uh, Schaefer of BTS even suggested that this could have been a, a, a suffering resulted from uh, a stoning or a beating that Paul received in Lystra, which is just very close to the region of Galatia. He could have just had just his face messed up from, from the beatings he received, you know, and, and that could have been the reason it was so grotesque. Because he says there in the, in the text uh, that they didn't, they weren't repulsed by him, they didn't despise him or loathe him, even though he uh, had this illness. So it also would have, it would have been something grotesque even that would have made them repulsed by him, but they still received him as Christ. It's, it's one of the end of his letters where he says, see with what large letters I write to you. So there's some sort of problem. It's this letter. Okay. Right, it's his letter. So that's another thing that they point to. Maybe Paul's eyes were messed up. See how he had to write real big? Yeah. That's yeah, that's actually, that's it. Yeah. So that, that may be a clue into an issue that, that uh, Paul had there. Um, let's go on into verse 16 real quick. He says, Paul, Paul asked them, So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, he's speaking of the, Ju the Judaizers, these false teachers in Galatians, they, they eagerly seek you. Not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. And so Paul uh, has insight into the motivation of these false teachers and what they're trying to do. And he's warning the churches. He says, they're trying to shut you out. They're shutting you out from my gospel, from me, and, and therefore are shutting you out from Christ himself, from God himself. If you turn to another gospel, you leave him. Right? And so Paul's warning them. They're shutting you out from the gospel of Christ. And uh, he gives the motivation there. Um, they want you to seek after them, right? So that the motivation between these, behind these false teachers is that they're just trying to heap up disciples for themselves. They just want the Jews to, I mean, they just want the Gentiles here to, to follow them, to seek after their, 
um, media, mediatorship in the, in the law covenant, I guess, you know, follow us as we show you how to be made the children of Abraham. They just want disciples. They want people to follow them. And so they come up with a, a system of law for people to follow that they can lead them through. Um, and Paul kind of concedes here in verse 18. He says, but it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner and not only when I am present with you. Um, so Paul says it is okay to be sought after if it's in a commendable manner. And Paul gave us an example of that in 1 Corinthians. He says, uh, be imitators of me as I'm, a, as I'm an imitator of Christ. So it's okay to seek after Paul and, and Paul's um, walk with Christ because he is following Christ. It's okay to follow men if they are following Christ as an example. That's commendable. Uh, but Paul wants them to, to follow him and, and follow his, his walk with Christ even when he's not present even when he's not present, because they did when he was there. They received him, and they received his gospel, and they loved him. But now that he's gone, and these other teachers have come in, um, Paul is fearful for them. Verse 19, he says, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, uh, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. And so Paul's desire, as we've seen the whole time, and the whole reason he wrote this letter and is pleading with them, is his desire is their sanctification. He wants the Galatians to be made Christ-like. He wants Christ to be formed in them, right? And, and as their pastor, as the, the founding pastor of this church, Paul says it's not a painless process for him. He says that he's in labor, in labor pains, working with these churches here. Um, it is a painful and frustrating and terrifying thing to see your flock showing signs of unbelief. Um, you know, I can only imagine in that sense where Paul was going through all the labor that he put in and the suffering that he did in his missionary journeys to, to see the churches here um, falling away in a sense. Uh, Emilio, do we have maybe five minutes maybe? or yeah. Are we okay? Okay, let's try, to, uh, Stay on. let's try to go on through this last section here. The last section begins in verse 21, and, and I think we can work through it simply because we've already, Paul's already addressed some of these issues. We've already seen... Uh, the purpose of the law and, and where people fall short when they try to keep the law. So let's try, to, let's try to get through this text right here. Verse 21 says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Um, and, and here is one of those places that I said that Paul um, is using the word law in two different senses in the same sentence. Right? We, we would assume that when he says you want to be under the law, you want to be under the Mosaic law given. Right? That's what you're trying to come under. You're trying to keep days and be circumcised all these things. But as we'll see, he says, do not listen to the law, and he broadens it out. And we're going to see the examples not from the Mosaic Covenant, but from Genesis, early in Genesis, right? Um, and, but this is Paul's point. He says, do you not listen to the law? It's almost like what he said in chapter 3. Uh, you, want to, you want to be saved by the law covenant? Don't you, didn't you listen to what it said? It said, cursed is everyone who doesn't keep everything in it. You've got to pay attention to what this law is you're trying to keep and look at it very closely. And here... Uh, Paul's example from the Old Testament, he's going to show that uh, they need to look closer at the Old Testament because the Old Testament's not simply giving a, a historical, grammatical reading of the text. It's not simply that. There's more to see in it. Um, it means that the Old Testament's not just telling um, accounts, historical records of people's lives. There's redemptive um, things being shown, redemptive purposes and saved God, uh, God-saving purposes in the Old Testament as Pastor Emilio showed, right, in his Easter service. Um, they didn't see Christ in places that they, they should have seen him. 
and they didn't see the gospel of grace and the, and the justification by faith alone as they should have. And so, so Paul points them to pay better attention to this law that you're trying to keep, this law that you're, that you're being referred to. Verse 22, he says this, For it is written that Abraham had two sons. So again, he's, using, he's referencing great Abraham here, the father of all who believe. He says Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman was through the promise. And I asked for five minutes. I don't know how we're going to do it, but just really quickly, if nobody's familiar with the account of Abraham and his children, uh, what happened was this. Uh, we saw the promises in Genesis 12 and 15, right, that, that God promised Abraham descendants. It was through his seed that the nations would be blessed. So Abraham had a promise from God that he was going to have children for sure because it was through his seed that the nations would be blessed. So Abraham's counting on children. God promised it to him. Um, but what apparently happened is Sarai, Abraham's wife, um, seems to have gotten impatient with the promise of God. And so what she did was she gave her slave woman, Hagar, to Abram as a wife so that they could have children in that way. Right? That's what they did. And Ishmael was born. They had a son named Ishmael. Um, so Ishmael was born. Um, God returns to Abram in, in Genesis 17 and renews his covenant with Abraham. says, through your seed, Abram, I will bless the nations. I'll have, you'll have many descendants, he promises him. You will have descendants, Abraham. And due to that promise of God, uh, Sarai, who's now Sarah, Abraham, Abram's now Abraham, um, due to that promise of God, at the age of 100, Abraham and Sarah have a son. Due to the promise of God, a miraculous birth, Abraham, uh, Isaac is born. Okay? So that's, that's the two births that happen there, and that's the distinction that Paul brought up in, in verse 23 here. What's the distinction between those two births of, of Abraham? Um, so the, the birth accomplished through the slave woman, he says, was according to the flesh. It just means this is what Abraham and Sarah tried to manipulate and tried to make happen by their own doing. Right? That's what that means, um, as opposed to the birth of Isaac, which was miraculous and based on the promise of God. In verse 24, Paul says, this is allegorically speaking for these women, Sarah and Hagar, um, they're two covenants, which means they represent two covenants. They're pictures and types of these two covenants, both covenants we've already looked at. Um, but he mentions the, the first covenant with Hagar, the slave woman first. He says, uh, one, there are two covenants, one's proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who were to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. And so what he's saying is that Hagar, the slave woman, who um, had the child through the working of the flesh, represents the Mosaic Covenant. It represents Mount Sinai. It represents... Um, what the present-day Jews in Jerusalem were trying to do, they were trying to accomplish and, and get the blessing of God through works, through their own way. They, they took the slave woman and, and tried to manipulate um, God's promise and in a, in a, in, obtain the blessing um, through what corresponds to just works righteousness, which is the way the Jews in Jerusalem and these Judaizers were attempting to, to receive the blessing of Abraham. They were trying to do it by keeping the law, um, by their own doing. Um, but going on, speaking of 
Sarah, on the other hand, in her birth, verse 26 says, But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has had a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. And so Paul's here uh, reminding the Galatian churches again of their status. They are like Isaac. They're children according to the promise. They're born from above, from the heavenly Jerusalem, from the kingdom of God, based on the promise and grace of God, not based on law-keeping and them trying to manipulate them with themselves into the, the kingdom of God and into receiving this blessing. Um, verse 29, he says also, But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. All Paul's referencing there is, is the Genesis 21.9, where the son of a slave woman was seen mocking Isaac. Um, Isaac was being weaned at like age two or three probably, and, and Ishmael, who was 13 or 14, Sarah saw Ishmael mocking her, her son according to promise. And here we have uh, the words in, verse, in, chapter, in uh, verse 30 of Sarah, and it says here, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Okay? This is a quote uh, of Sarah when she sees the son of the bondwoman mocking. And, and she says to cast out the bondwoman and her son because they're not going to be an heir. Just as God had said to Abram, they're not going to be the heir. But it's going to be through Isaac. And... Uh, and so in this, we just see that in the same way, this is what's happening now. The Jews, all these people who were, uh, who, were, who were seeking to be justified by law, they persecute the church. They persecute those who are trusting in, in, the, in, the, in the promise given to Abraham. And by the casting out of the ball and her son, we see God's rejection of this. Just as Hagar and Ishmael was cast out, so God will cast out those who seek by the flesh to gain the inheritance. Um, and lastly, verse 31, he reminds them again, just as Josh brought up, it's very helpful. He's telling them over and over again, why are you seeking this thing by law? You've already attained it. He said, so then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman, reminding them of the grace that they've received. Um, and that, that's really all the time that we have. We've got to go. But I would just say as a church, we too need to be reminded of this. We need to remain under the gospel of grace. We need, to, we need to protect the gospel of justification by faith alone. I mean, Paul dedicated a whole epistle to it, a whole book to it. And so it's very important that this foundation of the gospel will protect the gospel of justification by faith alone. Mm -hmm.